0: All right. All right, good morning. How is everybody? Doing okay? Good. Didn't hear from anyone, so I'm assuming you're all good. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> morning. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, just a, a quick, I uh, want to give you guys two things before we get into God's Word this morning. The first is uh, the Covenant Member Meeting is next Sunday. So uh, many of you guys saw that email from me Monday and responded. So grateful for that. Um, had over 50% of you respond. So if you're in like the 45% that didn't get the email, just make sure you check it. Because um, we're just renewing membership and also dealing with RSVPs for our Covenant Member Gathering uh, next Sunday uh February 9th 12:30 to 2:30 where you'll have lunch and we will be able to install a bunch of new members and will be a great time as a faith family so um, just keep an eye out for that if you could graciously try to Find that email for me if you're like, I'm a Covenant member, I didn't get it. Uh, reach out this week if you can't find it or something like that. Um, and then Group Connect. Uh, group's going to be rolling out in March, March 1st, so about a month away. I can't believe it's February, February 2nd. And uh, just keep that on your calendar. It's where we love to roll out, kind of where all the groups are going to be scattering and groups that might be near you where you can get in community and begin to grow in grace. And uh, we got kind of four lanes for those if you're new to those things. Some are sermon-based, some are um, seeker-based, some are... Uh, study-based and book-based and so uh, lots of great ways for us to grow together in community and so just be looking forward um, to that. Um, Pastor uh, Mike McKinney was actually supposed to be teaching this morning uh, and he called me at 3 a.m. and it told me he couldn't. So um, just so you know that's, that's not like good notice. Okay so... <laughs> Uh, here's what we're going to do, we're not, we're not going to be in uh, First Peter at all, uh, if, if you thought I was that gifted you should leave, alright, so um, we're going to be, <laughs> Jesus is, is leading us to Philippians, so if you have a Bible... I want you to go to Philippians, and normally what we do if you are visiting is we take books of the Bible, we walk through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've been in First Peter, it's been an amazing study, and uh, this morning's just going to be uh, something else that God wants for us, which is fine. We want to trust Jesus and, and follow his leading in that way, um, and so I'm sorry, I'm just trying to do one thing on my, uh, on my phone so I can actually control the screen, because I love to be in control. <laughs> just kidding but not, okay, all right, we're good. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do, sorry, ADD. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna pray because we need help from the Holy Spirit. We're gonna be in Philippians two, twelve to 16. This is just where Jesus led me. I think it will be encouraging for us. Um, we're a church that loves Jesus and loves the gospel, and uh, every book of the Bible teaches that and heralds that, so it really doesn't matter where we go. Um, we're always gonna be seeing some new shade or way by which Jesus wants to form us more in the image of his son, and so I think this text this morning will encourage us. I'm going to pray and ask for the Spirit's help to uh, give me the words to say and give us understanding for what he wants us to hear today, all right? Jesus, thank you that you brought us together and that you knew before even uh, the church was established uh, what would happen in its gatherings. Thank you that mornings like this morning are not a surprise to you. Uh, so we just pray that you would meet us in ways that are meaningful and helpful and uh, we trust you and what you want to say this morning and how you want it to work this morning uh, maybe in ways that we did not realize and we uh, we pray for Mike and his family that you'd heal their home and sickness and uh, just all that's happening there and uh, we pray Jesus that you would um, empower us through the help and presence and gift that is the Holy Spirit of God encourage those that are here that are seeking and, and curious about you and your ways, and we pray that those who know you and love you and are yours, that you would strengthen us and build us up more to the image of the Son this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, we are in First uh, Peter. I'm not, no, we're not. See? I'm so used to that. We're in Philippians, so here's what I'm going to do. It's going to be a fun morning. Boy, I'm like, I'm st- I haven't slept at all. Um, all right, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, flip, let me give you a little bit of background on the letter to the church at Philippi. The church of Philippi is a church that was started by a real kind of like wildly um, unique group of people. You've got a, a previous girl that was demon-possessed and used by fortune tellers. You have uh, a wealthy businesswoman, and you have a, a jailer who uh, kind of all come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and help start this church. And uh, God uses these three unlikely heroes to kind of grow this church of Philippi. And Paul is writing to this church and he is telling them basically um, that they should adamantly pursue Jesus Christ at all costs, that that you can gain everything in life, that you can have your perfect marriage and you can manage your own sin and you can have your bucket list filled, but if you don't have Jesus, you've lost. Um, You're missing the mark, so don't let your pursuit be morality, don't let your pursuit be religion, don't let your pursuit be a better self-image, let your pursuit be him. That's what Paul wants these people to know. He wants them to understand. He wants them to pursue Jesus Christ at all costs. And um, what's amazing is Paul here in this text is actually um, going to explain the how we do the why. Because what happened is if you read chapter 3, it's a very famous passage. If you grew up in church, you're probably used to it. Paul gives all the reasons why He pursued religion and he pursued religious activity and realized that that was all vanity apart from affection for Jesus. And he learns that Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who saved him and put him on this pathway of pursuing him. And so after he kind of gives his autobiography, here in verse 12, he kind of gives the, um, how do we do this now? Because Christ is my goal now. Everything else is rubbish compared to him. And then he kind of says, okay, here's here's how we do that. Um, Christ surpasses all things. He's better than all the things that I thought were great in life. He had the highest degree. He was the highest in academia. Um, He was the leader of um, these zealous people that are actually persecutors of Christians. Uh, He really was a guy who was esteemed and looked up to and was popular. Um, How do I now that I love Christ more and have gladly sacrificed the loss of all things compared to knowing him? How does that work itself out? And um, so, He's gonna show here um, this thing. And and here's what Paul's about to say and, and, and what he's about to say, because he knows we're tempted to think, I think two things. Um, One is uh, we're tempted to think, well, if Jesus is already mine and I'm already positionally made righteous in Christ, that's what we believe as Christians, that that Jesus does this amazing act of justification. It's just a big theological term to say when he um, saves you, he actually takes his righteous life and puts it in place of your sinful, unrighteous life. And so we believe that Jesus substitutes himself in place for us. That's what happens on the cross of Christ and in his resurrection we trust him for forgiveness of sin he actually becomes what we should have been and he gives us what we could never be that's what the gospel is and so um he does that he says you're righteous now and so Paul knows we're going to be tempted to believe well why pursue him then <laughs> like like why go after Jesus if I'm already made perfect right if I'm already positionally righteous um or on the other side, he knows the temptation is, if I'm already promised heaven and these things are guaranteed for me, why bother pursuing Jesus? Why bother making much of him? Why bother making him the aim of my life? Now, in one sense, I get this is kind of a mute point. Um, because um, someone who trusts in Christ desires Christ. So, so, so you're, when, you're, when you're saved and brought into the family of God you are saved and given a hunger. Um, now, it's different to varying degrees. It's not the same for everybody, but at the bottom line, there is some level of desire. All right, so in one sense, I realize it could be a pointless point, but, but no person who is transformed by the amazing grace in the gospel of Christ steps back right after that and says, I don't know, I'm gonna kind of weigh out the pros and cons of whether I should pursue them or not. Like, that just doesn't happen. At some level there's this understanding of I'm born with a hunger and I want to pursue Jesus. It's never void. So this is huge. Paul understands those two temptations and he's going to show us that even though he has been made new in Jesus Christ, even though he's been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, he is still not perfect. He is still tempted. There are still struggles against the residual effects of the fall in the Apostle Paul, but there is more of Christ to be had. So here's what he is going to say uh, in verse 12. Um, We're going to pick it up there. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me perfect his own. Okay, Um, the first thing is understand Paul is so good because he loves doctrine, so he's addressing two heresies that were happening. One is in regards to obtaining, one is in regards to perfection, and so in regards to obtaining, if you read 2 Timothy at another time, um, it talks about how there are people saying the resurrection already happened, and he's saying, no, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. I'm eagerly awaiting that day when I will fully be with Jesus Christ, um, but he's also addressing this obtaining, because part of the Judaizers' theology at the time was um, you can actually live morally in such a way by which you can obtain spiritual perfection here on this earth. And Paul's saying in this text. Listen, um, no one does. Yes, you're made righteous by Christ alone, but you still struggle against the residual effects of the fall from Genesis 3 that are in you as God continually grows you more to the image of his son. And so uh, he's helping you understand that, that those two things you have to be, be careful of. That that latter one of you can be perfect now leads to Pelagianism, just a crazy heresy that you can read about in church history. Not, not time for that here, but he's saying don't listen to those false teachings. i not perfect yet, and I'm an apostle. Um, I haven't yet reached perfection, and I'm someone who's being used to write inspired writings, but I'm striving for it. I can't wait till that day where I'm fully with Jesus Christ. Now, to some degree, I was thinking about this. I mean, isn't that part of the reason why we long for the return of Jesus Christ? Like, I mean, deep down, don't we all long to be perfect? I mean, who doesn't, right? I've never met that man or woman who says, man, I'd I just wish I could still struggle, right? I just wish I still had issues. I wish I still had imperfections. I, I've never met that person. Um, but don't we long to be free from those entanglements? Don't we long to be in a world where nothing's broken and there's actually peace and there's, right? And, and so that's part of what we long for. And so Paul is saying here, I'm striving for that day where I'm not tempted with anything anymore. But, but look at what he's saying here. He says we pursue him Because we're not perfect. Isn't that great? Like Paul's not saying in this text, I'm pursuing him because I've reached perfection. He's saying the very fundamental reason to pursue Christ is because I'm broken. Right, Because I'm imperfect, because I sin, because I fall short, because I don't meet the mark constantly, that's actually why I pursue Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. See, many of us grew up thinking that if I trust in Jesus Christ, I'll instantaneously be free from every single sin and desire. Right? I mean, anyone grown up in that? Like, that's, that's, that's an awful place to live. And so you look at people with these testimonies and go, I ain't him. I and her, I mean, you literally don't even think about that anymore. You don't even, I mean, there are aspects by which God can be exceedingly gracious. But the the normative life of the Christian is, man, I am not only having victory now and God has saved me and he owns me. But I increasingly learn how to walk in victory, not instantaneously. So, So here's the danger most of us fall into. We think that in our justification, sanctification happened too at the same time sanctification is not justification justification is god declares us righteous because we trust in his works and his life and his death and his resurrection and not our own life and our own merits and our own works so he gets all the praise for that but then there's something called sanctification that happens whereby which we now begin to walk and we begin to look more like him progressively slowly Over time, and Paul, I think, is helping remind us that if we're not careful, we'll think both happened at the same time. So Paul knows, just like you and me, there's more he wants to do in us. So I keep pursuing him. Now, don't miss the why then. So I'm pursuing him because I'm not perfect. So if you're in this room well aware of yourself and the ways you fall short, you're in good company. And that's why we pursue Jesus. That's why we want him. I can't believe he still loves me when I don't love him. I can't believe he still loves me when I'm a hypocrite. I can't believe he still shows me mercy in this state. That motivates us. We can't believe that we serve a God like that, that continually forgives, continually brings us back to himself, right? And so you have that. But then look, he also shows the why because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So why do we relentlessly pursue him? Because he already has us. Isn't that amazing? So because he already owns you, that's why you go after him. You're not going after him to try to earn what's already freely been given because he already owns you, because he already took ownership of you, and you're not trying to do anything to get rebought or re owned. That frees you to pursue him from pure motivation. And the more you f- pursue him and seek him and look at the ways that he gave you his righteousness and look at the ways that he freed you from the enslavement to sin, that begins to transform you. This is why we are so against behavior modification and morality and you thinking that religious activity saves you, right? Jesus saves you. And here Paul's showing us that the fundamental reason that makes us distinct from every other belief system that exists is that we actually pursue a God because he already owns us, because we can't lose that salvation, and that fundamental reason is what pushes us headlong into Jesus Christ. Now, um, I want you to hear something else, because I'm sure there's a a lot of backgrounds uh, in the room. Um, This text is great, because if you've been rescued by God in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and you have a tendency to think there's no way you can pursue Jesus because of something you've done or because of a struggle that text is calling you a liar (laughs) like he's not going to let you out of that oh well I can't pursue him because I really struggle with this this particular thing or I can't pursue him because I have this particular issue. Or I did this thing a number of years ago. Or I did this thing last month so I can't pursue him. I can't approach him. I can't. That text is calling you a liar. Like the beauty of the gospel is that he owns you regardless of you. That, that he died for you in your sin. He didn't die for you when you were doing well. He didn't die for you when you were pursuing him. He didn't die for you when you thought he was a good idea. Right? Or a good savior. Or a good God. He didn't die for you then. He died for you. In your rebellion and in your rejection of him. This is why he basically says to Paul, who's writing this, hey, you're a murderer, you're mine. (laughs) And then in Paul becoming his, he pursues him because he's owned by Jesus. So Paul's just saying, because you're his, push headlong into him enjoy the one who bought you enjoy the one who owns you enjoy that every bit of chasing him and learning about him is not at all to change the way that he loves you and views you but it's so that you might be transformed as you run into him and here's what I'm learning in my own walk with Jesus Um, I'm learning something very simple you can either pursue Jesus or be miserable to some degree that, that's, just, that's just what I'm finding. Um, you can either choose, I'm going to pursue him and I'm going to want to know him or I can be miserable to uh, some degree. Um, I think we often don't pursue him because we're so busy trying to make ourselves clean before we pursue him. I think often we don't pursue him because we think that um, we needed to get clean from Tobias in the first place um, and we forget this beautiful truth. This is profound. This is what it means to just continually teach and preach the gospel to your heart. Uh, we have to remember these things often. And, and here's how this connects and here's how this is so important. I think a mark of Christian maturity is that when you stumble and fall, you don't run from him, you run to him. And I think he's showing us here this. Because otherwise, you know what that creates? This like weird thing we do where we like only run to him when we're doing well. And then we only run from him when things aren't well. Right? Or we feel like I can't get near him because I'm in this deep pattern of habitual sin. When he's like, that's the very place I want you to see me and look at me and run to me, so I can actually break the authority and power of that sin in your life. Um, and so so often, man, we 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 kind of categorize and we treat God in this way. And Paul's saying, Man, a mark of Christian maturity is actually in those moments where you realize you're not perfect, that you still press into him and you still pursue him. That's where you begin to see his beauty, and that's where you begin to see the change. I mean, isn't that just amazing that, that we say, I failed him again, and he still loves me in this? <laughs> I just, oh, Jesus, I did this again, yet you still forgive me in this state? I mean, that's what begins to well up a heart of worship, doesn't it? I mean, it does nothing for a heart of worship to say, oh, man, I did this again. I know, I know, I know. I have to, I have to figure this aspect out, and I'll get myself together, and then I'll come back, you know? Yet you have a God who's saying, come back, come back, come back. And I think that creates greater intimacy and creates worship because he continues to love us in our failures and shortcomings. And here Paul shows how this maturity looks. He shows what this looks like in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made up my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now... That verse may sound a bit strange structurally, like if you're in literary works or an English major, you're going, that's kind of weird how he writes that, but um, he's just using imagery of the Greek games. He's using analogies that these people um, would use, this idea of obtaining something that hasn't been obtained yet. So it's this idea that there's a runner, and the tape is like right here, and he's like almost there. He's like straining for it. He's going to obtain it, but he hasn't yet. Right, But it's like a few feet away. Um, that's the idea. The person's coming up to the podium to speak, but he hasn't quite gotten there yet. Right, But he's, he's arrived. He's almost obtained it. It's, it's, it's this idea of you're right there, and you give every effort to finish well and keep going. So even though you've obtained it, you don't stop. You don't give up. You don't lose heart. Now, Paul constantly gives this imagery of striving, of toiling. You can read every letter he's written in the New Testament. This is not odd for him, of, of giving all your effort and running towards him. Um, so how does this play out in fighting your struggles and sin? I think it plays out in a massive way um, because I think there is a right way to fight and struggle in our sin, and I think there is a bad way, and one One bad way is by just simply sin managing, and that's what he's showing us here. So most of us grow up thinking and believing that to be a Christian now, my job is to just get in order all my sin. Okay, so in this circle is sin, and in this circle is Jesus Christ, right? So instead of doing what Paul's teaching us, and instead of pressing and pursuing a person, Right, We just look at our sin, Jesus is nowhere in the equation, and we say, okay, I just got to figure out how to manage all these aspects that aren't right. So my lust issue, my greed issue, my self-esteem issue, my, I don't know, just list the sins you feel like are habitual, and you just try to manage them. And as soon as you feel like you like, get control of one, you move on to the next one. Here's the problem. Jesus is nowhere in the equation. Like, there's no pursuit of him. There's no aggressive love for him. There's no affections for him. There's no seeing him in his word. There's no prayer. There's no, how do you still love me even when I don't do this well? He's nowhere to be seen. So you become a legalist. You become a moral person. You become a religious activist who just simply manages sin when really he wants you to pursue him so as you look at him and see what he's done and see how he's forgiven you and see the grace in the gospel as you do that that begins to break the strongholds of this in your life but if you're just over here going man I stink navel gazer right me myself and I how am I going to fix all this without him Paul's saying you're not going to get anywhere So that's a horrible way to defeat sin or work with sin in your life or struggle with sin. And I would argue that is the main way most people do it. So Jesus saves you and then you leave Jesus and go, okay, i got to figure out how to fix all these things. Jesus is saying, I saved you so you could keep looking at me. I saved you so that your eyes would primarily be on me. Yes, we run from sin, but you're pursuing a person. And so here he's trying to show us this uh, amazing connection here that that God still loves me even when these things aren't all totally fleshed out and finalized. and glory that will happen. But until that day, let's continue to pursue and know Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm not looking around at all the ways I'm stumbling and falling short. I'm looking to him. I'm looking to him. See, um, some of us, Your past is your greatest thief, right? It just robs you of your joy today. It robs you of your pursuit of him today. Yesterday robs you of your pursuit of him today. You're so miserable. You're so caught up in what you did yesterday. And Jesus is like, I'm available today. Come to me. Be honest. Repent. Turn from sin. Look at me again. See my love again. See my mercy again. Let's walk. Let's go. And and we're still going, I don't know if I can look at you. You're right, you shouldn't be able to look at him. But because of the mercy and grace in the gospel, all of a sudden the throne that was terror is now a throne of grace. Hebrews 4, now it can actually go there to find help in time of need. Peter knows this, Paul knows this is a temptation, and so he's showing you, hey, it robs you because you're so fixed on the ways you fell short as if you no longer will. So I love this. Paul says the goal is the prize, the prize is the goal. I love that. The goal is to be like Christ, and the prize is Christ. So friends, Christ has made us his own. God takes self-centered, idolatrous people on our way to eternal punishment, and his sovereign grace chooses us for salvation and makes us eternally like his own son. I don't know about you, that makes me want to run hard. Like that makes me want to pursue him. That makes me want to see him. That makes me want to push headlong into him. So these are not um, interchangeable kind of like dichotomous things. They're the same thing. The goal is Christ and the prize is Christ. So because you already have the prize, press on towards the goal. That doesn't hinder your pursuit. That invigorates your pursuit. The more you look at what he did, the more the gospel that happened to you, that transforms you. It's amazing. It's unbelievable what he's saying. And I love that he says we do this by forgetting what lies behind. Now, this is such good advice. I'm going to do this by forgetting what lies behind. Um, Now, I don't believe this is an all-encompassing charge from Paul to say that we never look behind. Because clearly the Bible talks about um, it's good for us to remember. Right? We remember the ways he's been faithful. We remember his promises. We remember his works. Here's what I think he's saying, and I think this is big. I think he's saying, I'm going to forget anything in my past that would hinder my pursuit of him today. You are choosing to forget anything in your past that hinders your pursuit of him right now. So if there's a, a sin that you're thinking about six years ago that's making you feel like you're condemned and you're not worthy of his love, and well, we forget that. That's in the past, right? There's a reason that our windshield's much bigger than a rearview mirror in the car, right? That's what I'm talking about. Some of you don't even know what that is. You're still looking at a rearview mirror all the time, right? So I got fender benners. I had a friend, Jesse Kunkel, in college. She literally would turn her rearview mirror Vertically and pointed at her. I got in her car. I was like, "Jesse, why is it like that?" She goes, ah, "It's much better to look at myself." and I'm like, "Wow, this is scary. I want to jump out of the car." Like that's so. You got a big windshield with a little rearview mirror. God wants you majority of your life looking at what He has for you, looking at what He's done and what He's going to do for you, and knowing that He forgave your past and He's involved in your present and in your future. So let me give just two thoughts on this on two different ends I thought about. Um, this, this, I forget anything that lies behind that would affect my pursuit of him today. I think there are two different places you could fall. I think one is the legalist and one's the perfectionist. And I think both are dangerous. So the legalist lives on past victories. And I would argue, don't live on past victories. Because that can actually hinder you in your pursuit. Um, this is good, but it can also be bad and make you lazy. Um, he says to the Corinthian church, let anyone who stands take heed lest he fall. So we don't live off of victories of yesterday. And here's why. Because you might stumble today. So, so some of us go, well, I don't know. Back then, I used to study the Bible. I used to be in a growth group. At one point, I led a guy to Jesus. And you're living off of these like, past victories to somehow, you know, invigorate the future. And I'm saying if you're back there, you can't move forward that way because you're just anchored in your past and you're comparing. So don't be a legalist who says the ways that I lived then were better. Don't live off of past victories. I think that's also really kind of damaging to how we even make goals as Christians. Man, I'm going to go two weeks not doing this particular sin. How about you spend two weeks pursuing Jesus how about you spend two weeks just gazing at him and wanting to pursue him in Bible study and prayer and getting around people that love him and draw out you know, strength points where you're weak. And maybe maybe that's what you do. Maybe, maybe you, you change that up. Because otherwise, man, what happens if you don't make it to those two weeks and you commit that sin? You feel like a failure. And I don't like that. That's not even biblical. I mean, how about you just pursue Jesus. When you stumble, you get up and look at him and enjoy his forgiveness and keep walking. So we have got to be careful. So there's the legalist: don't live on past victories. And then I think there's the perfectionist: don't be stifled by past failures. Some of us are so debilitated and distracted by past sins and failures that you'll never run in the present. Um, my life was so bad. I was so sinful. I was so immoral. Did God really forgive me? And you're always asking yourself that: Did God really do it? Can He really forgive me? Am I really worth His love? I mean, I mean, I was just really, really bad. And here's the damaging part about this is you're so hung up on guilt of the past, which is just a form of pride, so you're still sinning. That stinks. And Jesus died for your pride. I mean, it also means that we somehow think that you're the one person in human history that is the one particular sin that the cross of Christ couldn't cover. Like you have the, the one sin that, that you believe the cross of Christ couldn't handle? I mean, that is, in my opinion, just as proud as pretending you don't need the cross at all. So you got the one side that says, well, I don't need the cross of Christ at all. And the other side that says, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm so bad, he just does it, he's not able to forgive me. And so we don't live on past victories, and we also don't be stifled by past failures. So there's a forgetting what's behind while straining towards what's ahead. And Paul says that, one thing I do... I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes, while I'm forgetting anything in my past that hinders my pursuit of Jesus today, he then turns the corner and says, let's move. This is just like missing in Christian circles. Let's go now. Let's strive. Let's toil. Let's pursue him all the more because of what he's already done. Let's keep going. Let's not get apathetic. Let's not get complacent. There is a cost to wage. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Let's go now. right? And he can do that because he's empowering you through the help of his Holy Spirit. And even when you stumble and fall, as you move, he picks you back up, puts you on your feet, not because you're great, because he's great. And you continually approach his throne of grace for help in time of need. You start growing in Christian maturity, pushing headlong into him, not staring at your sin. He's saying this is how we do this, so let's move, let's strive. He's saying we're not simply part of a religious activity, that's not the point. The point is a person, the point is him. So when you gather with the church, that should be the point. If that's not the point, you're not going to grow in Christian maturity. You're not going to be able to run the race, you're not going to be motivated to press headlong into Jesus. So he's showing us all these things Together, And here's why, here's where we lie to ourselves, because we hear grace, and we think grace is saying we shouldn't strive, we shouldn't toil, because Jesus already did it, and that's us doing it. Right? Oh, now I'm falling into works. Well, that's what's amazing about this passage is Man, Paul's saying, well, yes, he, he does. In justification, he declares you righteous. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to obtain forgiveness of sin apart from the cross of Christ and his resurrection and what he did on your behalf. But he goes, man, he goes, the sanctification is through your straining and through your striving. So through us adamantly pursuing him, we're not re-winning salvation. Through our striving and toiling and pushing headlong into Jesus Christ, it's part of how God's going to make us more into the image of his son. But he's not saving you through that. And the Christian does this. I love this text is not letting us believe also in the passive Christian idea of grace. We're not passive now. Oh man, we're all the more fierce the gospel does not create lazy Christians and passive people. It creates urgency and a longing and a, and a desire. So here's a question. Let's get practical and then I'll just wrap it up. Um, if the pursuit and goal is him, how can we cultivate then a want and love for him? Because you pursue what you want, Right? Pursue what you want. So, so listen, I always want to say there are some central things that are historic, that are spiritual disciplines that will always be a part of the fabric by which we pursue and grow in our love for Jesus. Okay, so I never want to lose those. So at first, just those three, scripture, prayer, community. Like that's just, that's just ordinary means of grace. Now I'm going to talk about a few other things, but I just want to say don't, don't think those other things are ignoring those things. Okay, so in one sense, it's always going to involve Scripture, prayer, and community. How do you grow in greater want for Him? Well, you can either guess about God, you can create your own God, or you can come underneath how God has revealed Himself in the Scripture. So that's part of it. You sit under the preaching. You learn how to study. You get with other brothers and sisters that can help walk alongside you and teach you how to look at the Bible. And I love how that's happening. I talk to you guys all the time. Um, how people are learning how to disciple one another and and it means that the teaching ministry, of the local church you 're part of is super important right they 're teaching you what God has said and how God has explained things so we don 't guess about God or make up our own god and and then it also involves prayer. you have to beg God for this i 'm sorry, but you do you know what 's amazing, man when I am like pleading for God for something that 's actually in an in like an amazing way my intimacy grows like like when I'm like in just moments of like God I don't feel near to you God I feel a little bit distant God I I feel like my heart is off somewhere and I actually plead with him to help me understand that intimacy grows even in my asking like my love for him and my my affections for him grow even in just me praying those particular prayers even if I haven't seen results of those prayers We believe God's the active agent in this. We believe that God is the one who can really give us a greater desire for himself. Remember, prayer is never simply to get things, friends. It's to get to know him. That's why prayer exists. That's why I love prayer and worship, the last Wednesday of the month. That's why brothers and sisters gather at 9 o'clock every, or 8 o'clock every morning and pray for the service. Because we believe who cares what happens on the stage if God does not act or intervene or show up. So it's prayer. Another um, main part is there's community involved, right? He saved us not just to himself, but a people. There are brothers and sisters you get around. This is fundamental in you knowing him and pursuing him is walking with others who are interested in that. (laughs) Now, obviously, we want to get around the world. We want to be missionaries, but don't do it cut off from those who are also interested in the same Jesus you are. So get around them and let their interest and their desire and their affections fuel you. Not, not comparing, not like, wow, you're so much more spiritual, man. Just let it encourage you. Let that fuel you. God designed us in that in that way. And these will always be profitable. So that those central things, they're going to flesh out differently based upon life stage and season you're at in your life. I always want to say that. Um, they're not going to look the exact same for everyone. Um, when I was in college, I learned that that reading the Bible and, and kind of prayer and stuff for me um, worked really late in the evening. That's just when I began to do it, when God really got a hold of my life. And then um, I met my wife Kristen and I learned there are morning people and night people. And I learned that with my wife, we're going to chat at night. And so that's when she likes to talk. And so uh, that didn't work anymore for me when I got married. So I realized, wow, I I have to now do maybe afternoon. And then we had new rhythms with work. And when she needed to go, and afternoons were tough. And so then it became morning. And then we had our first son, Jackson, and nothing worked. So you, you have to, like, understand, like, there are, different ways by which in your season and stage these things will flesh themselves out, but, but those central things will never be void in your life. But outside of those things, I love to always ask, are there other things, common graces God's given, that grow a love for him and a desire to pursue him? There might be a hobby that you do. It might be a place that you go. It might be a, a song that you listen to. I, like, like, pay attention to those things too. Those are actually really good things. Um, I've shared with you before, there is one song that still to this day is my favorite hymn. It's up in our house, on our wall, the whole thing. I know, it takes up a lot of wall, and it's in Christ alone. And I'm like, there's something about that song for me that just invigorates me. So I'll put it on, a lot. So if you've been with me in the car, you're like, oh, gosh, Pastor Mike. It's like this. And different versions. I'll give you different versions, right, and different melodies. But that for me, I remember um, another thing for me is I had a good friend, Paul Curtis, um, and he was somebody in college for me. I just, man, I, we didn't live close anymore, but, man, he just loved the Lord so much. And I would just call him and just ask him, man, to just tell me about like, what's new with your walk with the Lord, just to encourage me. Just because I was so fired up after talking to him. He just invigorated my heart for Jesus. Um, there's also a little odd, but I, I like to drive by graveyards. And it, for me, I know you're like, man, you are odd. Well, not really, because for me, it just reminds me of the reality of life and death. And, and when I felt like I would get lazy or complacent, I would just drive by graveyards and look at the reality. And for me, that would do something to me. So here's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not telling anyone here to put Christ alone on your car and drive by a graveyard today. And I'm not saying that's going to magically make you have a desire to pursue him and press on to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that. I am saying that you need to find out what that is for you. Right? I mean, we say this all the time. It's just so funny. Mike McKinney's up at, you know, 5 a.m. reading. You know what I'm doing? I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. Pastor Peter Cho, he's up at 4 a.m. reading something. I'm sleeping still. I'm in the middle of a hard dream. Okay? (laughs) All right, we just get up at different times. We always laugh because I'm always getting my best stuff at like 11 p.m. They're they're asleep, they're asleep. I'm like lazy bums. You're asleep. I'm up reading and meditating. Then they're thinking of me in the morning. You lazy bum, you're still asleep. I'm up and meditating. So just know, man, these these different ways, none is better. Just find the lane that that works for you. And another thing for me that really helps, I want to encourage you in getting around people who excel where I'm weak spiritually. That's so good. Um, just get around people who excel where you're weak spiritually, where they can pull you out of those spaces and strengthen you. That's part of community. Um, That's why, honestly, that's why I like worship and prayer so much. Not because I have the best prayer life, because there's something about, for me, gathering with God's people, hearing other people pray, that helps me grow in prayer. That's why I love doing it. And that God works and God acts. But here's the other piece. What, What... What shrinks then your desire for him? And I always argue it's probably not the big, wicked, moral things. It's usually probably the morally neutral things because those things aren't wicked or evil. You and I are. And so we love to take really good things and make them ultimate things, right? And so we chase those things with more vitality than we chase Jesus Christ. And those can be good things. I would never tell you that Satan is in hobbies and TV and movies, I would just say that, man, you got to be careful. Those good things that you love don't become ultimate things. And those things might be sabotaging a lot of love for Jesus, and you're just not aware of it. See, Satan's so wise. I mean, he doesn't give you the big glaring thing. He just makes you nibble on crumbs. That's how he always gets you. That's why Peter always says false teachers are not going to come in so obvious, foaming at the mouth with a Satan T-shirt. Like, that's not how you're going to see false teachers. They come in secretly. Man, they're very deceptive. They're very subtle. They, they almost just kind of like come behind the curtain. You don't even realize they're there. It's the same way in which sin and darkness kind of begins to shrink our love for the glory of Jesus Christ. Satan never shuts the lights off. He just slowly dims them over time, right? And, and we're just aware of those things. So be careful. It might be some morally neutral things that are sabotaging your affections for him. And just so none of us feel alone. At least once a week, sometimes more, man, I wake up and the reality is I'm not doing a good job at this. There are areas where I feel apathetic and I need his help again. And I need to get my face back in the Bible and I need to be praying again on my knees. And I need to be calling somebody or a round other brother or sister or ask an elder to help me in this particular way. Because, man, I just I'm sensing that God is doing something and I'm not going the direction that I should. But then verse 15, I just want to end with one thought on this. This is often overlooked text, but I think it's super important to the end of this. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. If anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul knows in the church at Philippi, that it's filled with people who are not interested in this. Everything I just said, I just don't want him. I don't want to pursue him. I don't want to strain towards the goal. They're not interested in pursuing Christ and knowing him. They'd rather be content with where they are and maybe spend the rest of their life justifying why they feel they've uncovered all there is to know about Christ and becoming convinced that's all they need to know about him. He knows that. There's no effort. There's no growth. And Paul just says, if you hear all this and you think otherwise, you see no good in pursuing Christ, straining toward what's ahead, growing in godliness. If you don't want to listen to me, okay, I'll just leave you to God. He'll, he'll reveal that to you maybe, right? I mean, you know, this is the hardest part about being a preacher or a teacher. This is one of the hardest aspects to my job, right? I mean, well, one of the hardest aspects is my least favorite verse in James, which says, teachers will be held and judged with the greater degree of strictness. That is not my favorite verse to memorize, but I did memorize it because it's important. But, but the other hard part is, I know that I can't make anyone do anything. That's so hard. I mean, for some of you guys, you know this. I mean, I just want to, like, jump inside your body, literally, and just be like, man, grab him. Like, don't you see the direction you're going? Don't you see the things that you're choosing that are going to destroy you? Don't you see how you're just, you're just spiritual? You're just religious. You don't have any relationship with Jesus. Don't you see how this way of thinking is so harmful? I mean, I, I wish I could do that, but, man, I can't. It's like, I'll just let God try to help you. And he can. That literal word means to unveil. God will reveal. God will unveil it to you. God is going to have to do this glorious truth. So all I can say week after week is turn to Christ. He's good and he's saving. He loves you. He does not love you in any way predicated upon how you behave or what you've done or haven't done. He loves you because Christ will love you and be standing in your place for your sin. That's the only way God can love you. And he says he becomes our substitute. And he says there is wrath to be paid and be poured out upon sin and sinners in eternity and now. And Christ can and has stood in the place for that. He will propitiate it, the Bible says. He will appease it. It has to go somewhere so it will go on him. He will take it and consume it all upon himself. The righteous for the unrighteous to lead us to God. He will give you everlasting life. He will give you forgiveness of sin. He will adopt you into his family. He will allow you to walk then as a stumbler and grumbler and imperfecting person and constantly look to his perfection so you continue, so that you can continually walk in grace and obedience and continually marvel at the fact that God still loves me despite me. There's no other God that will say that, no other belief system that will do that. You can chase that all you want in life and find yourself dissatisfied, disproportioned, and angry and bitter, creating a God you want it to be that constantly dissatisfies you and disappoints you. Or the God of the Scripture says, come to me. I'm telling you, he's worth the pursuit. Not because you're trying to earn what's freely been given, but because you're learning more about this amazing Christ that has already bought you and owned you. Maybe we just ask God this morning to help us. Learn what it means to strive after Jesus, to pursue Jesus, to see Jesus. Maybe it's starting to make sense to you why we believe that Jesus is so central to everything we teach. Why we don't want you to hear a sermon without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How it's a waste of time otherwise. That otherwise you'll be trained to leave and do something to appease God instead of God's already appeased himself for me. So all these things I'm being taught is only a way to grow me more into the image of his son not to earn something that's freely been given, we're going to have to remind ourselves daily through prayer, through community, through scripture reading, and through the ordinary means of grace, and through the ways by which he might, in your unique wirings, grow you in affection for him, and watch out from the things that shrivel affections for him. Jesus, thank you that you're good Father, thank you that you've given us a cause to strive after. Thank you that we can forget what's behind anything that would hinder our pursuit of you today. I pray that you'd make that so clear to us what those things might be. I pray that we would not be legalists who live off of past victories and we would not be perfectionists who are stifled by past failures. I pray you'd help us to be gospel people that realize we're imperfect and strive all the more that we've already obtained salvation in heaven, yet we strive after it because it's not yet obtained. Father, help us to even understand what these truths mean in more fullness over time. We know that 45 minutes together in a sermon cannot accomplish that. Your Holy Spirit can take seeds of truth and reverberate that that could bear fruit for years and years to come. We pray that would happen. By your mercy, help us, God, not to be sin managers, but Christ pursuers. In Jesus' name, amen.